All right, moving right along here. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we are going through some of the scariest movies of all time. Part of our October series of things that go bump in the night. Leading up to Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. All right, that was The Shining. We're on to our next film. It is another Stephen King film. It's very much in the news nowadays because it is the book, the movie, It. All right. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this film because I actually just reviewed it not long ago because I compared the original movie to the new remake that just came out a couple, like a month ago starring a whole new cast. It's a whole new era, folks. And I, I think the new movie is good. I really do. I think they did a good job. I think the guy who plays the new Pennywise did a fine job. But the fact of the matter is there's only one Tim Curry. And Tim Curry, I said to a lot of people, I was like, you know, if you took Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise and took the original score and put it in this new film, you would have a masterpiece. And I firmly believe that the new cast, the kids are phenomenal. They really are. I mean, that was their performances. These no name plucked from obscurity group of kids gave such good performances. And the writing is excellent. The only problem is. I don't want to criticize the guy who played Pennywise. I really don't because I think he had an impossible task of living up to Tim Curry's original performance. It was impossible. And so I want to be fair here. And I think, and I said this in my original review, I think a lot of what what I didn't like from his performance had to do more with the direction. I'm talking about Bill Skarsgård who played Pennywise in the 2017 version of It. But I think what really kind of was my biggest problem with the new film is that there wasn't much of a relationship established with Pennywise. We don't know. Well, first of all, and I, I'm going to go back to my original comparison. Here is the first scene with Pennywise from the original movie, 1990 version starring Tim Curry. Here's the first time we ever see or hear the voice of Pennywise the clown. Hi, Georgie. Surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? 
yet. They float, Georgie. They float. All right. That's the first version of the film. Here's the same scene, virtually the exact same scene with almost the exact same dialogue in the remake from 2017. Instead of Tim Curry playing Pennywise, you're going to hear Bill Skarsgård playing Pennywise. Same scene. We're going to talk about the differences. What a nice boat. Do you want it back? Um, yes, please. You look like a nice boy. Do you want a balloon too, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? I should get going now. Oh. Without your bow? Here. Take it. Oh, sweet mother of God. Okay, so I think it's very obvious in just hearing those two scenes, but the difference is in the original with Tim Curry. Hi, Georgie. You believe that this is really a clown. Hi, Georgie. Don't you want a balloon? I am Pennywise the dancing clown. All that stuff. You believe that this is really kind of a funny character. You could see why the little boy might be lured into believing him and becoming comfortable and trusting him. It is a clown after all. And Clowns are fun and funny. Kids love clowns. At least they used to. Who knows? In the second version, when he's like, Hiya, Georgie. What a nice boat. Do you want a bat? It's like, when I hear that, first of all, the sound that gets his attention, as I said before, it sounds like a werewolf chomping through the torso of a human being. So that alone is unsettling. But then when you hear his voice and their interaction, he sounds like everything bad you've ever imagined, especially when it comes to children. He sounds like a murderer, a psycho, a pedophile, a maniac. This kid would never be for a second interested in having a conversation with this nut job in the sewer. And so that kind of, you know, that establishment of a relationship and kind of a a sense of false security with kids, that's important because for the rest of the film, I kept asking myself, the new version, I kept asking myself, why are any of these kids like not, why would any of these kids take any second to interact with this beast? And it goes further than that. In the original film, we also are given kind of a a layout of Pennywise's history and his connection to the town of Derry. And I have to say it. It is all explained in one of the best scenes of all time. My dad says there's no way to date this one. He says it's probably from the earlier mid-1700s, when there was a logging town. Hold this. Pennywise the clown? That's him. That's him. 200 years ago? He was here then? Come on. It's just a, it's just a drawing. Now look. Here he is again. The same man. It's not a man. It 
it. That's what happened back in Georgie's room. you crazy and I'll kill you all. I'm every nightmare you ever had. I am your worst dream come true. I'm everything you ever were afraid of. Moving right along. Okay, the next movie on our list of scariest movies of all time is a classic Steven Spielberg film, in fact. But it's also on this list, not just for the quality of the film, but for the legend of the curse related to its name. I'm speaking, of course, about Poltergeist, the whole Poltergeist franchise. Yikes. Creepy McCreeperson. Yes. Okay, so, basically, this story tells the tale of... Well, it revolves around the members of the Freeling family who are stalked and terrorized by a group of ghosts led by a demon known as the Beast. But really, his name is Henry Kane. Reverend Henry Kane. The original film was co-written and produced by Steven Spielberg. And the third one was, I have to say, the first movie of this franchise that I ever saw was the third one. So I kind of like the third one. But most people who you speak to will say that it is the worst by far. Neither here nor there. Let's meet Henry Kane, shall we? Henry Kane in the first two films was played by Julian Beck. And I have to say, I have to hand it to him. I don't, I actually have read that he was pretty creepy and weird in real life, but I don't make any judgments. I don't judge. He was creepy and weird and scary in the first two films. Why wasn't he in the third film? We'll get to that. But here he is Henry Kane. Hi. Are you lost, sweetheart? Are you afraid, honey? Well, why don't you come with me? No. All right. I'll sing you a song till your mom comes back. God is in his holy tent. Earthly falls. Be silent now. I'd like to purchase this. Okay. Where's Caroline? I don't know. She was just here. Baby! Caroline, honey, what happened? Get lost? I don't know. Thank you. My pleasure. Such a lovely child. Oh, thank you so much. Such a Lovely child. I uh, made a mistake. 
Henry Kane, Reverend Henry Henry Kane, is actually only in the second and third Poltergeist movies. He's not in the first. My goodness. He was played by Julian Beck in that, what you just heard, which was the second movie, the sequel, Poltergeist 2, which came out in 19... Hello! 1986. Okay? And here's why Julian Beck didn't play him in the next one. It's because of the Poltergeist curse. Yes, that's right. A rumor curse attached to the Poltergeist trilogy and its crew. And it's basically born of all the deaths associated with the cast and some of the crew members. It was just terrible. For example, Dominique Dunn, who played the eldest daughter Dana in the first film, she died at the age of 22 after being strangled by her former boyfriend. He was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, but still, she's di- she died. Heather O'Rourke, the little girl who played Carol Ann in all three of the movies, died in 1988 at the age of 12 due to the complications from an acute bowel obstruction. She died during the filming of the third movie. And Julian Beck, of course, died right after the second film was made, and he had to be replaced with a man named Nathan Davis as Henry Kane. In the third movie, Henry Kane appears in in mirrors, but everyone gets mad about it because most of the film is spent yelling after each other. Carol Ann! Carol Ann! Bruce, please! Carol Ann! Tangina! Where? For God's sake, shut up! It's true. That's true. I can't deny that. But it's a good film. Very spooky. I will say this, though. The reboot, a remake of the original, came out in 2015, and the trailer looked awesome. It looked awesome. I was so excited for it, and it was such a dud. So... What have we learned here? Don't judge a book by its cover and don't judge a movie by its trailer because oftentimes the trailer's great and the movie sucks donkey balls. Moving right along. Oh, yes, moving right along here. Well, we're going to talk about two exorcisms tonight, and the first one we're going to talk about is a film that came out in 2005. By the way, this is one of two films I have on this list that was made in the 2000s. Everything else was made in 19. 90 or before. So, that tells you the state of horror films, right? I'm talking about The Exorcism of Emily Rose, as I said. It came out in 2005, and I thought this movie was really good. It had the potential to be a big stinker for a lot of reasons. Number one, it had the words The Exorcism in it. Now, everyone was going to go into that movie looking for something like The Exorcist, which is one of the most famous horror films of all time. And it's not The Exorcist. And it doesn't claim to be, but luckily it does a good enough job differentiating itself and being truly scary in another way that it succeeds without having to constantly be compared to The Exorcist. It's a different story. It's re- it actually is based on the story of Annalise Michel and how she was an exorcist victim. I mean, you can look into the history of that. I don't want to get into it. But The Exorcist is based on another exorcism story of a different person, a boy in St. Louis. So they are totally different stories telling totally different tales. I thought this one was very scary. Another reason why it had the potential of being a big fat stinker was because a lot of the movie takes place in a courtroom, which is very difficult. People love to write for courtrooms. 
They like to write movies in courtrooms. They, a lot of people write plays for courtrooms. It's hard to make movies and plays that work well when there's a courtroom involved. And it's kind of a cop-out technique. People usually go to courtrooms when they are having trouble developing a cohesive plot and whatnot. But this one, I have to say, it works it in very well. We find out through the course of the film that this young, beautiful girl named Emily Rose... By the way, I went to a college with a girl. Her name was Emily Rose, for real. And I was a freshman in college in 2006, one year after this movie came out, and I was like, oh my God, are you possessed? The answer is yes, she was possessed, but not by the devil, by an annoying piece of shit bug. Anywho, the exorcism of Emily Rose. Many differences from the original Exorcist. I don't even know why. I mean, I don't even know why I'm comparing them. Totally different. In the original Exorcist, she was possessed by one demon, Pazuzu. In this movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, she's possessed by six demons. Six. Tell me your name, wicked one. Yes, those are the sounds of horses and other barnyard animals going ballistic because they are witnessing a demon. Yes. Yikes. Okay, yikes. Moving right along. All right, for the next film. If you've ever listened to the show before, you'll know that I typically stick to what some would consider the classics, like The Exorcist. And other things along those lines. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, folks. Most, if not all, of my favorite scary movies were all made in, uh, well, a year before 1995. I can tell you that much right now. They just don't make them like they used to. But tonight, I want to do something a little differently. I do have a movie that was made, get this, in the year 2007 that I would like to feature tonight as one of my... Well, I don't want to say favorites because it's not, but I will say list-worthy and just 
good old-fashioned horror flick. I'm talking about a movie that tells the tale... Well, it tells... It tells the tale... The tale of Mary Shaw. Beware the stare of Mary Shaw. She had no children, only dolls. And if you see her in your dreams, be sure you never, ever scream. If she finds you, remember this. There's only one thing that can save you. Silence. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about the movie Dead Silence. Now, I'm kind of going out on a limb here to feature this movie, to tell you the truth, folks, because it didn't get great reviews, and it's kind of been bashed on the internet ever since it came out. But alas, I enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was spooky, and there were parts that made you jump, and it was a good old-fashioned horror movie with supernatural elements and a villain that didn't slash. It wasn't just a typical scream, or I know Eat It Last Summer, or Michael Myers killing people with a knife. It was, they actually had a storyline to it. Speaking of that storyline, it tells the story, or the tale, if you will, of Mary Shaw, a famous ventriloquist from the town of Raven's Fair. She grew up a bit of a loner, didn't have many friends. When she became an adult, she didn't have any children. She didn't get married. She just lived with her dolls. That's why the poem goes, she had no children, only dolls. Her ambition in life was to make, as she put it, the perfect puppet. She was a famous ventriloquist, at least famous amongst her hometown of Raven's Fair. Gentlemen, prepare to be astounded. Prepare to be amazed. Boy. Witness Mary Shaw give life to the boy made of wood. Then one night, many, many, many moons ago, during a huge performance, a young boy decided to heckle her. I can't help it. said that? I did. I can see it. Her lips are moving. What do you say to that, Billy? Young Michael here doesn't think you're a real person. What do you mean, Mother? He thinks you're a dummy and that I'm doing your voice for you. But that can't be true. There's no way you'd give me all the good lines. Forget about him, Billy. There will always be doubters. I don't want to forget, Mother. I think we should show this boy just how real I am. I'm just as real as him. No, I'm afraid we must go on with the show. No. I'm as real as you are, Leave and I'll him show alone, you. Billy. I'll show him what Listen it's like, to me. Mother. That's enough. I'm as real no as more. you. Bring him up here. Yes, yes, they all clapped and they all laughed and smiled and thought it was all just part of the show. But to their dismay, that little boy, Michael, went missing not long thereafter. And the menfolk of Raven's Fair knew it had been Mary Shaw's doing. And so they went after her. They took the law into their own hands and they went after the old woman. And when they found her, they slit her throat. 
And so to get revenge, she came back from the grave, just as someone always does in these good ghost stories, and decided to wreak havoc on the folks of Raven's Fair for all eternity. She would rip out the tongues of anyone related to any of the men who had come to find her that night. Now, who's the dummy? This movie won't go down in history as one of the scariest of all time, and we probably most likely won't be talking about it 30 years down the road, but I felt inclined to include it on my list of must-see scary movies, if for no other reason than the fact that it was made in 2007, and it's so rare that I find a modern-day horror movie that I enjoy as much as I enjoyed this one. Say what they will about the characters or the special effects, whatever. I thought this was a perfectly enjoyable flick. Well, that'll do it for this. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And I also hope you'll go out and give Dead Silence a chance if you haven't already. And take a look at the tale of Mary Shaw, who had no children, only dolls. Yes, I still have two more movies to talk about, and I have to say, they are two of my all-time favorites. Moving right along. In fact, this one, second to last, is my all-time favorite. Pet Cemetery. What is this place? This was their burial ground. Whose burial ground? You know, folks, this movie is an enigma in a lot of ways. It's not directed by some big name horror director like Wes Craven or John Carpenter. In fact, not only that, but well, this movie came out in 1989 and was directed by a woman named Mary Lambert. Since then, Mary Lambert has gone on to direct only really a handful of films some music videos, a couple of TV episodes. But when it comes to the films, they've all, in my opinion, kind of sucked the big one, including a sequel to this movie, Pet Cemetery 2, which came out three years later, which really sucked. And so how then did she pull this out of her bag of tricks? The world may never know. Another way in which this film is an enigma is that this Stephen King adaptation comes from a book that he, unlike any other of his publications, put away, thinking it unsuitable for publication, for fear that he had gone too far with the subject matter. Stephen King felt he had gone too far with the subject matter. For those of you who don't know, this is the guy who wrote Carrie, The Shining, Salem's Lot, and It, the movie with that terrifying evil clown. But it was this, Pet Cemetery, that he felt he had just gone too far with, and so did his wife, and so did his friend, another author. The last way in which this movie is an enigma, and then I promise we'll get into the heart and soul of it, is that it combines a number of different elements that you usually see solidified in a horror movie. It also involves a uniquely large amount of characters, uh, so much so that it'd be very easy to get kind of scatterbrained and to feel as if the film didn't have any real focus, but you never feel that way in this movie. It all ties together amazingly well. 
It has everything from ghosts to the actual undead to the hauntings of strained relationships in one's past to suicide and the sudden loss of an immediate family member. It's all there, and it all plays an incredibly effective role. And notice how none of those things I've mentioned innately involve animals. You see, folks, I think this film's title gives people the wrong impression. They hear Pet Cemetery and they immediately think, oh, okay, well, it's a film about dead animals, whatever. They can figure it out. They make one assumption or another and they assume it's not going to be interesting. The animals play a tiny role in the overall theme of this movie, and it's really not about them at all. What this film's really about when you get right down to it is the idea of cheating death, of bringing one back whom you loved so dearly and feel you lost unfairly, which frankly is pretty much any death one may experience. If you were given the opportunity to bring them back and to cheat fate, would you do it? Would you do it regardless of the possible consequences? It's an interesting question, and as we learn in this movie, it can have dire consequences. You see, friends, Lewis Creed was hired as the new doctor at a local college. And on day one, literally his first day on the job, he is faced with the challenge of treating the victim of a terrible, terrible accident. His name was Victor Pascal, and sadly, he dies on the operating table. But not before suddenly grabbing Lewis and whispering a mysterious and cryptic message to him just before dying. That night, in what is seemingly a dream, Victor visits Lewis in his sleep, warning him about the burial ground. Remember, Doc, the barrier was not meant to be crossed. The ground is sour. And thus our journey begins. The weeks pass, and come Thanksgiving time, the family pet cat, Church, short for Winston Churchill, gets run over by a semi-truck in the road right in front of their house. Lewis buries the cat on the Micmac grounds. Not but a few days after the burial, Lewis discovers Church in the garage, seemingly brought back to life. However, there is something different. Church is not the same. He seems evil. An evil shell of his former self. Then, things take a drastic turn. And you know what, folks? I think I may just leave it at that. However, I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't at least touch on the single character in this movie that truly haunted me. The one image and the one character that stuck with me like none other and to this day scares the crap out of me. Not long after the tragic events, Rachel hears her husband Lewis talking to their daughter Ellie about death and about what possibly happens when you die. It clearly makes her uncomfortable and that night she approaches Lewis in the bedroom to tell him why. My sister Zelda. I know, she died. Spinal meningitis. She was in the back bedroom like a dirty secret. My sister died in in the back bedroom, and that's what she was. 
a dirty secret. I had to, I had to feed her sometimes. I hated it. But I did it. We wanted her to die. We wished for her to be dead. It wasn't just so she wouldn't feel any more pain. It was so we wouldn't feel any more pain. It was because she started to look like this monster. Even now, I wake up and I think, is Zelda dead yet? Is she? She certainly is. But from that point forward, the spirit of Zelda, her ill and absolutely disturbing looking sister, comes after Rachel. Comes after her for letting her die. Words cannot express the horror of seeing this emaciated corpse of a body disentangle itself and sit up straight to tell her what she had come back for. Rachel! Is that you? I finally came back for you, Rachel. I'm going to twist your back like mine so you'll never get out of bed again. Does this not already scare the crap out of you? You ain't seen nothing yet, folks. This movie is terrifying. It absolutely ranks up there with The Exorcist, and for me, far beyond, this is the scariest movie I have ever seen. It's very subjective, so it may not be the same case for you, but I guarantee it will scare you. I also want to mention before wrapping this up, that a huge portion of what made this movie so good is the acting. I'm surprised I haven't mentioned it before. But the acting in this movie is strikingly good. From Lewis Creed to Zelda. Was that not terrifying? That actor playing Zelda, in the few scenes they were in, they were able to communicate and terrify better than any villain I've seen in the past 10 years for sure. An enigma it may be. But as far as I'm concerned, this film should go down in history as one of the scariest movies of all time. Moving right along. The final movie on my list of scariest movies of all time is one that I've actually mentioned a few times already. In fact, I just mentioned it a few seconds ago. A wonderful little picture full of life lessons and beautiful examples of how to live your life. Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless Yes, how lovely. I'm talking, of course, about the film that, if nothing else, reminded you that the power of Christ compels you, 
The power of Christ compels you. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. All right. Fuck me! Fuck me! Fuck me! That's great. If you haven't figured it out by now, I'm talking about The Exorcist. Now, this film is often referred to as the scariest movie of all time, and I have to say, it truly is a terrifying movie. In fact, when this movie opened on December 26, 1973, it caused widespread hysteria, the likes of which I don't think film the film industry has ever seen, before or since. There were reports of fainting, people being institutionalized. There was even one report that after a woman saw this picture in the theater, she had a miscarriage. I don't know how those two things are related, but it was indeed reported. Theaters started to provide barf bags for the people they knew were going to see The Exorcist. The public reaction to this movie truly was unusual. Even Linda Blair, the woman who played Reagan, the possessed girl in the movie, she was about 12 years old at the time of this movie's release. And even she said that she felt the public's response was, at the very least, puzzling. I was as much watching what was going on, not believing that the world, that people could react in that way. I mean, I was like, why are they reacting? It's a movie. I think there are a couple reasons that people react so passionately, sometimes violently, to The Exorcist. The first of which is the subject matter. It has to do with that ever-so-sensitive subject of religion. Anyone with half a brain knows you don't mess with the religious folks. They're just about as crazy as it gets. And I'm not necessarily talking about those Sunday churchgoers who simply like the community and believe in the Bible and all that whatever. Hey, everyone's free to believe and do whatever they want. I'm talking about those beautiful people like the ones who attend the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, the ones who go and picket people's funerals and protest at various events. The ones who hold the signs that say things like God hates fags and God hates America. The ones who insist that all the soldiers who have died overseas are now rotting in hell because God wants to punish us. It's those people that I think might see a movie like this and do something crazy. You know, like threaten Linda Blair's life because she is possessed by the devil. Sounds obscene, doesn't it? Oh, it is obscene, but it happened. It happened so many times that Warner Brothers, for the next seven months after the film's release, had to hire personal bodyguards for Linda Blair. But again, religion is a almost hypersensitive subject in this country, and so this film was bound to rock the boat a bit. And it did so in a way that other horror movies dealing with religious subjects don't do. As one priest put it, The effect was really searing on a lot of people because this wasn't just the omen, it wasn't just Rosemary's Baby, it had a psychological, religious impact. Another element that made this film so jarring is that it was advertised as being based on a true story. And let me tell you folks, some of the visuals in this movie, to see that 
pretty, cute, happy, button-faced girl, rosy cheeks and beautiful smile to see her go and transform into this demon, this beast. It is, it is jarring, it is staggering, and it is scary. To then think that that actually happened based on a true story. That's what that means, right? That means that this actually happened. The thought of this actually taking place is beyond horrifying. And that's exactly what they want you to think and feel when they say, based on a true story. When you see that phrase written on any book cover or movie poster, a lot of times it's almost a flat-out lie. The key part of that phrase is based on, based on a true story. Almost never will you see written on a book cover or movie poster a true story. On the other hand, it's fairly common to see things that are based on a true story. Very, very different. Vastly different. To say something is a true story means yes, This happened. It happened like this. It happened this way. The end. But to say that something is based on a true story, well, that opens all kinds of doors. That means that virtually none of this necessarily happened, but it's where we got the idea. Yet people don't think that way. If someone sees based on a true story, their initial thought is, oh my God, that actually happened. It is a fantastic marketing tool, but unfortunately, it's very misleading. I'm afraid most of the time when you see that something is based on a true story, no, most of it didn't actually happen. In fact, a lot of it is completely and utterly made up out of nowhere, but still somewhat based on the original idea. And so, that having been said, The Exorcist is remarkably unique in that it doesn't take many liberties. It's a lot truer than any other thing you'll see based on a true story. Here's the author explaining how he came about writing the book The Exorcist and eventually the screenplay for the movie The Exorcist. Well, in 1949, I was a junior at uh, Georgetown University. And in class, I heard some details about a so-called case of possession and an exorcism that was going on in the neighborhood somewhere nearby. The victim, who was identified as a boy, was of a Lutheran family. There were poltergeist phenomena surrounding him. And the family had gone to their minister, who told them, let the boy stay in my house overnight. Well, uh, all hell broke loose in that man's home. He then said, look, I don't know what to tell you about this. Uh, The Catholics uh, claim to be able to do something about this. They deal with that sort of thing. And you might go to a Jesuit priest. Many, many, many years later, it all came back to me. And I determined to write that story. Well, minus the staying overnight at a priest's house, that's pretty much what the Exorcist movie and book, that's what they are. 
Now, obviously, we don't know what the allegedly possessed boy looked like or sounded like or what he said, and we don't know what the supposed poltergeist-like phenomena that took place, we don't know what that was, but we didn't necessarily need to know what it was. They took the fact that we didn't know what he looked like or sounded like, and they used that to ultimately make the story so terrifying. I gotta tell you, folks, the cute little girl, Reagan... She turns throughout the course of the film into this scarred, bloody, nasty, cold demon. And it just, raggedy hair and the eyes change and it's like, oh my gosh. Not to mention the things she says and the voice. The voice. Keep away. The sow is mine. What an excellent day for an exorcism. To see this cute, pretty little girl turn into this nasty demon and talking with that voice, it sticks with you, folks. It sticks with you. Did you do that? Do it again. In time. Oh, no. In time. The third and final thing that I think really sticks with people about this movie and gives them uneasiness to this day is the fact that there are a lot of myths surrounding the making of this movie, most of which prove to be not myths at all, but actual truths. Listen to some of the people involved in the making of this film as they talk about some experiences they had while in production. In my 32 years of of, of making films, I've never had a set burned down, and we did on The Exorcist. Well, we had a, a, a fire that was still a mystery. The set caught on fire one weekend um, when no one was there. They never did find the reason for that either. They, they couldn't find a, a, an electrical problem. They couldn't find an arsonist. There were a couple of unfortunate deaths during the filming. There were nine deaths which is an enormous amount of deaths connected with the film. Some very directly, like the actor Jack McGowan, who gets killed in the film, completed shooting and died. And these weren't casualties from stunts or things like that. These were kind of men standing behind a camera all of a sudden, dropping dead. Now, naturally, some people on the production, cast, and crew brushed these things off as being sheer coincidence. After all, it was a long shoot, and when you do shoots that last a long time, things are bound to happen. Accidents happen. You know, it's just a coincidence. Let's move on. But many others just couldn't dismiss all that was happening so easily. After all, they had made many films over many, many years, and nothing like this had ever happened before. So why was it happening now? Could all of these terrible things have something to do with the source material? They couldn't help but wonder. It deals with very heavy forces. And um, I was a little worried about what that would mean to work with those. There was definitely a feeling that it could happen. We were playing around with something. I even felt it. I felt around. I was playing around with something I shouldn't be playing around with. What do you think, folks? 
Why were people randomly dropping dead throughout the production? Why did things happen, like the set burning down one night when no one was even around? Why did the public react in such a radical, hysterical manner, the likes of which we had never seen? Were all these things mere coincidences? Or could there have been forces looming around the exorcist, trying to say that they were messing around in territory they best not mess around in? What do you think? We want to hear from you, and if we don't, well, let me just say, I hope demons don't exist and possess people, for your sake. This is the next best thing. Don't go.